Welcome to the Bulwark Podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. Our guest today, uh, Dana Milbank, nationally syndicated columnist for The Washington Post, who is the author of three books on politics so far. His forthcoming book, The Destructionist, the 25-year crack-up of the Republican Party, is due out in August. First of all, good morning, Dana. How are you? Good morning. Great to be with you, Charlie. Hey, by the way, I, I thoroughly enjoyed reading your book, although I have to confess, for me, it is painful to read all of that to realize how long um, this crack-up has been going on. Uh, so <sighs> thank you for the book, but I uh, feel like, you know, the, the flogging will continue until morale improves. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you for reading it, uh, Charlie. And, you know, I, 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 I do think that it has been, you know, I, I traced it back to sort of the Newt uh, uh, era. I mean, you know, some could talk about Lee Atwater or, or go back, you know, further to the Southern strategy. But look, I, I mean, I, 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 I don't blame everybody involved in it, you know, going back over uh, the decades. But it's easier to see in retrospect how we got to this point. It wasn't necessarily visible at the moment. Even I, you know, I was covering it and didn't say, ha, this is going to lead to... <laughs> an insurrection in the Capitol on January 6th, uh, uh, 2021. But, uh, you know, if you do go back through it, you can say, ah, okay, so this is how we got here. Well, I don't want to be too dark here, but, you know, I, I, I was, you know, relatively pessimistic about how things were going to play out back in 2017. And I, I wrote and said that things will get worse. Everything bad will, will get worse, at least in, in the short term. And yet I think I underestimated it. Um, I was listening to Tim Alberta yesterday, who has this uh, fantastic story in The Atlantic about what's happening with evangelical churches. And it really dawned on me that, you know, that the, the toxicity is now so deep and has taken on a life of its own. And, and as, as concerned I was about the trajectory, um, I may have underestimated again how bad it might be. I mean, I, Mm -hmm. Do you have, I mean, I, I, I think you say that it, it's, it's not going to get better anytime soon, but it's hard to know when the fever breaks. Yeah, I mean, I think it could be a, a generational thing. You know, if you, you know, sort of my uh, hypothesis is that, um, you know, so much of this is driven by backlash to, you know, the emergence of a multicultural America, which has been, you know, coming into place uh, for decades. And in fact, the uh, uh, evangelical uh, Christians are a large part uh, of that backlash. So I think Trump you know, took advantage of what he accurately saw happening in the country and with uh, the Republican Party. He didn't create it. Um, so it, it hardly, I mean, it, it matters for the, you know, the, the short term, whether he's in the picture or not. But uh, you know, this backlash is going to uh, continue. And, you know, I think the fever breaks when uh, we reach a point when, uh, you know, the multicultural America is dominant. Look, we, we're no longer a white majority nation. Uh, that's still, tw we're still 20 years away from mm -hmm. that and probably 30 years or, uh, or more before you actually, that actually shows up uh, in the electorate. So inevitably, uh, I think it swings back. I don't know whether you or I are going to be around to see it, but, uh, uh, uh but there, there's a happy, there's a happy forecast. I am, I am resigned to perhaps, uh, not seeing it, but okay. So let's, let's just grab some stuff out of the headlines before we do the deeper dive. Uh, primary elections last night, uh, mixed bag for Donald Trump, mm -hmm. his, uh, endorsed candidate for governor in Nebraska loses. Uh, was it Herbster, uh, who, yep. 
I think I described him as he's like a bull semen tycoon or something like that. <laughs> had, had been accused by multiple women of, of abuse uh, so that that roiled the race. He went down. But right. in West Virginia, you had uh, two uh, incumbent Republicans running against one another. The Trump endorsed candidate won. The, the other incumbent went down in large measure because he voted for the infrastructure bill. Yes. That became the trigger point. So I, I'm interested in your thoughts about that. I mean, that was that was an interesting, uh, another interesting data point into what the Republican electorate is willing to support and what they're what they reject. Right. They rejected this guy because he's uh, voted for a bill that will bring broadband internet to places like West Virginia. Uh, Damn him. <laughs> how how dare he bring us uh, better roads, bridges, internet, and energy production? So look, I you know, look, I think Trump wins. I mean, he he won before it was over because first of all, that's a pretty fine dividing line. You know, the 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 idea of whether you support an infrastructure bill or not, and you know, who knows? Maybe having uh, Joe Manchin's uh, endorsement uh, uh, actually hurt uh, in yeah, that primary, really, and. In a Republican primary, I you know I don't know, um, but uh, you know you look at Nebraska, it is pretty startling that you know a man hey, look he he denied the accusations, but fairly credibly and uh, accused even by a, a you know by name by a, a Republican uh, state lawmaker, and even he was a, a viable candidate with Trump's endorsement. But I you know I think we're talking about you know shades of gray here in terms of how uh, Trumpy uh, somebody is. I think is something the same thing we're seeing in the upcoming uh, uh, Pennsylvania Senate primary. Uh, so whether he his actual guy won or not, uh, the larger picture is it has been so utterly recast in uh, in in Trump's image. I think it it hardly matters who the actual candidate is. Your colleague at the Washington Post, uh, James Homan, uh, points out that this uh, race in West Virginia proves that Biden's theory of the case has failed. And of course, you know when Biden ran. His uh, rationale was that he he had the the the, the chops to yoke the two parties together and pass bipartisan legislation. He thought the Trump era was an aberration that it would uh, dissipate, and and he thought these friendships forged over you know fifty years in Washington would allow him to break the fever. Um, clearly, didn't happen because uh, th this was. This was one of his great legislative accomplishments, this $1.2 trillion infrastructure bill. Um, mm -hmm. Biden at the time kind of claimed vindication, see, we can do the bipartisan things. And one of the Republicans that uh, went along with him, <laughs> cast in doubt or darkness. That's right. I mean, recall when they, uh, the House uh, passed the infrastructure bill, the Republicans, the small number of Republicans who went along with it, I think they were called traitors by uh, yeah. mm -hmm. um, Minority Leader Marjorie Taylor Greene. <laughs> Uh, but, uh, and that stuck, I mean, it became this huge liability for them, uh, you know, completely rewriting the whole playbook that, you know, both parties would, uh, benefit from, you know, sending money to the States for infrastructure. Well, I have, uh, your newspaper website up on, up on my screen right now. And the most read opinions, number one trending, um, is your piece yesterday. Give me one good reason. I should not believe Mitch McConnell, um, which I told you, I think before the podcast, and it actually made me laugh out loud. And of course, I mean, Mitch McConnell, you know, raised that possibility of a of a nationwide ban on abortions. Um, but but then he kind of backed away, saying he he absolutely promises and swears I will never support smashing the filibuster on this issue 
or any other. And amazingly, Dana, you like why you don't believe him. <laughs> I'm no. a little skeptical. I mean, only only Mitch McConnell knows, and maybe Mitch McConnell doesn't know that uh, what what he would actually do in that circumstances. But you know, I, I just decided to go back and look at the entire record of you know Mitch McConnell saying one thing, which he may have <laughs> meant very well at the time. You know, and this is going not just obviously the Merrick Garland uh, and, and the Supreme Court thing being the most obvious, his views on tolerating Trump or uh, impeaching Trump and the insurrection being the second most obvious. But, you know, just to go all the way back, I mean, Mitch McConnell was an abortion rights uh, Republican before he came to the Senate. He was blocking uh, ordinances that uh, inflicted with uh, Roe v. Wade. He was for raising the minimum wage. He was a champion of civil rights, you know, sort of across the board. But you've seen even things that have come to, you know, came to define him over the years. Like he's always been for the ability of, you know, private money in, in elections, as long as there was disclosure. And then when disclosure became uh, the issue, he opposed disclosure. So it's entirely possible he believes this very sincerely Today. Uh, about about the filibuster. <laughs> I mean, he sounded very sincere when he scolded uh, Democrats for um, using the nuclear option uh, for uh, lower court uh, judges in, in 2013. And then, of course, in 2017, he used the nuclear option uh, for uh, Neil Gorsuch. So uh, it, he may well mean it this time, but uh, color me a little bit skeptical. I actually thought I was worried the column got boring because there were just so many <laughs> examples of this happening. <laughs> no, people should go and, and, and read the column because you actually sort of do it the tongue in cheek saying, and I totally believe him. I've always believed Mitch McConnell. I believed him when he said in 2016 that election year Supreme Court vacancy should not be filled until we have a new president before he filled the Supreme Court vacancy eight days before the 2020 presidential election. I believed him when he excoriated Democrats in 2013 for breaking the rules and using the nuclear option to eliminate the filibuster for lower court nominees before he broke the rules and used the nuclear option to eliminate the filibuster for Supreme Court nominees. And it goes on and on and on. I believed him when he said President Donald Trump was practically and morally responsible for provoking the Capitol insurrection before declaring that he would support him if he's the nominee again. I believed him the day after the 2016 election when he said the election is over, we know who won. And the American people understand that if you get 270 electoral votes, you're president before refusing for weeks to recognize President-elect Joe Biden. Mitch McConnell has had this ability to, and, and you make the point that maybe he actually believes it, who knows? But, mm -hmm. you know, with great conviction, laying out a principle and a stand that without breaking a sweat, he, <laughs> he does a switchback on. And it's like, whoa, guy, you just said this. And it's like, well, that was then, this is now. And and now I mm -hmm. deeply believe this position. I'm now I'm, I'm because I'm on the other side of the issue. I mean, he's not obviously not the first uh, politician to uh, act this way. And you've kind of, you know, got to give him credit. I mean, comparing him to McCarthy, who has just, you know, debased himself. I mean, McConnell, at least, you know, rhetorically manages to dance uh, back and forth uh, between the two sides of the issue. Now, of course, this means he antagonizes everybody, but I don't think anybody doubts that his, you know, despite Trump's, you know, a drumbeat of attacks on him, I don't think anybody doubts that his position uh, is secure. Why? It's an, that's really an interesting point. 
because he's like the one of the few guys who doesn't appear to be that frightened. And Trump is going all out, Andy McConnell. I mean, this is this is going to be a big thing, right? Yeah, no, and the uh, the old crow thing is actually quite a brilliant nickname. I, whatever else about Trump, he's quite brilliant with the nicknames. Uh, but uh, uh, yeah, I I don't I think he's he's got a great deal of loyalty uh, in his caucus, a uh, great deal of uh, power uh, with the donors uh, in the party. I mean, you know, I think you and others have, have have made this point in the past, but I don't think we have Trump without McConnell. Uh, you know, no. getting behind him uh, in in 2016 and enabling him uh, throughout. I, you know, I, there was a, a there was a pivotal moment there, obviously, when Trump could have been uh, stopped. And, you know, I, many have, have called him uh, the greatest en- enabler uh, of Trump. He's not, you know, out there uh, like McCarthy is, but he is basically was was the key figure in bringing the Republican establishment uh, uh, to Trump. Uh, well, I think and, had he not been yeah. there, I think that might not have happened. Well, and also um, by blocking Merrick Garland, he allowed the 2016 election to become a referendum on the Supreme Court, which played really to Donald Trump's benefit because Republican voters really did see that as a binary choice. Um, you know, had he allowed uh, a vote on, uh, on, on Merrick Garland in 2016, that would have been taken off the table. And, and, I, and I think, and I, I do think there would have been an erosion of support for Donald Trump because I cannot tell you how many times I heard Republicans who they had no illusions about who Donald Trump was make the transactional decision that, well, because of the court, if we get, you know, a conservative in, uh, you know, in that uh, position, then it's worth everything else. So that, mm-hmm. that was, that was his other contribution. And the reality is that Donald Trump, for all of his failings, turns out to be very consequential in at least one area, which is the transformation of the federal judiciary. And that's all Mitch McConnell. Yeah, I think that's right. Uh, and, uh, you know, in, in, in this case, you know, uh, you know, the transformation of the federal judiciary is a place in which traditional conservatives have every reason to be happy. And I think that's largely because Trump didn't uh, overrun the federal judiciary with Trump judges. He did right. them with Federalist Society judges. Uh, so that does unify uh, uh, the right. Uh, uh, so, you know, there is something very rational about, you know, if Mitch McConnell, all he cares about is the legacy of transforming the judiciary. Well, he won the battle, right? I mean, it'll, it'll, uh, you know, as you, as we see from Roe v. Wade, just being the most visible, but uh, obviously Mitch McConnell has won that battle. And, you know, for the left, that will take uh, uh, decades to undo. Uh, what was the price that uh, came with that? I, you know, I, Yes, we might have lost American democracy in the in the process, but uh, uh, he did transform the courts. So I want to come back to uh, the Roe versus Wade, uh, the opinion, the Alito opinion. You have a piece about uh, a little detail about Samuel Alito's opinion. We have a report today about the fact that there are no other drafts that have you know you know surfaced yet, which is not surprising. Yeah, how can you how can you improve on that? Yeah, exactly, because it was it was so well done. Before we do that, though, I want to get your take. Uh, Elon Musk says yesterday that uh, if and when he takes over Twitter, he's going to uh, lift the ban on Donald Trump. Not a surprise at all. Good news, bad news, fallout from that. Uh, who should be worried about that? What, what do you think? Um, I, inevitable. I, I, I saw, yeah. you know, easy to see that uh, that was coming. Look, I think uh, Twitter is a cancer on civilization and is making us uh, hate each other and reduce everything to insults and 
siloing our, our our politics and making us journalists just talk among each other in a, in a sense of uh, groupthink. But if you're given that important uh, caveat, you know what? Uh, why don't why not just have Donald Trump uh, back in the mix? I I think Democrats would like to see it. Uh, because in a way he's not been front and center. So the crazy yeah. is not as, as front and center when others do the crazy, it may be crazy, but it's not as visible to America. So I think uh, the Democrats are, you know, sort of screaming hysterically, uh, about, uh, you know, the dangers to our system and democracy. And it's not as self-evident when you don't have, uh, Trump tweeting about it every day to, uh, 80 million, hundred million people. So, uh, you know, I just think in terms of political calculations, uh, it helps Democrats frame the case and, and make it a choice of Trump or not Trump. Okay. So I have a hard agree with you, hard, hard agree with you on all of this, because I know there are some people who think that, oh, we should just ignore him, which is wrong, just fundamentally wrong. Because the reality is that Donald Trump controls the Republican Party. He is driving, as we mentioned before. Uh, if he runs in 2024, he is, uh, I think, overwhelmingly likely to be the Republican nominee. And given what's happening in the country right now with the polls and the, the stock market and inflation, there's a very real chance he could become president again. So th th we don't have the luxury of ignoring him. In fact, the more scrutiny that he has, the better, the, the, the brighter the spotlight, the better. It's, and, and Republicans, I think, understand the downside because, remember, they spent years avoiding having to comment on the latest mm -hmm. batshit crazy tweet. Yes. And of all of the crazy stuff that's out there, Donald Trump has lined up with the craziest stuff. And so, yes, have it out there. Make Republicans have to respond to it. Uh, make it into a choice. So it's bad for the cause of truth. It's bad for civil discourse. But I really think it's bad for Republicans. And I think it's bad for Trump. I mean, mm -hmm. even the Wall Street Journal pointed out, you know, he gets back on Twitter. Maybe he's going to remind people why they got so sick of him and why he's a one-term president. Yeah, no, I think that's that's what happens now. Uh, surprisingly, uh, he was not able to lure uh, a large swath of America over to Truth Social, although I, he did lure me over there just to see what the heck yeah. was going on. But uh, yeah, the outside that really, you know, that recruited Trump's twenty best friends and the entire QAnon crowd. So you know, that's got to be un, unsatisfying for him. But. Uh, yeah, I think that the uh, given where we are, it's not going to make things worse to have them him out there on Twitter. The crazy is already happening. He's already having the influence over the party and has already remade the party. So it's not like having him off of Twitter is going to limit the damage. I think it'll just show everybody else the power that it's quite obvious to those of us uh, watching this thing that he has. Well, and, and also uh, collateral damage or maybe, you know, the... The added benefit is I think this kills Truth, uh, Truth Social. Uh, you can imagine that some of these other, you know, anti-Twitters that have been founded are, they'll wither on the vine if he comes yes. back to Twitter. And there's, I don't know, what do you think? I, there, he's saying well, it, that he won't come back, but there's no way he doesn't come back. He, he, yeah, I, <laughs> no I just way. can't see that. No. I, um, I am, you know, I'm concerned about Devin Nunes. You know, where, where this will leave him because it's Poor been guy. it's been a it's been a storied career and i'd hate to see it end this way <laughs> okay so, so let's let's talk about the post-role uh, politics of abortion uh samuel alito's um very uh interesting 
decision. You had a column the other day talking about the 13th, the 13th century law treatise that Alito used. I mean, I, I understand the attraction of originalism, but I, I was a little I was not expecting the 13th century citation. Yes. So let's talk about that right after this. This episode is brought to you by The Jordan Harbinger Show, which features in-depth interviews with some of the world's most fascinating minds like Ray Dalio and Malcolm Gladwell. Every Friday, Jordan also releases a Feedback Friday episode to respond to listener questions covering everything from conventional problems like leaving a dream job to doozies like helping someone escape an abusive relationship. You could also hear the latest news about Russia featuring a heavy-hitting interview with Gary Kasparov and his experience with authoritarian governments. And that's just the beginning. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show. That's H-A-R-B as in boy, I-N as in Nancy, G-E-R, in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening right now. Okay, we are back with uh, Dana Milbank, syndicated columnist for The Washington Post, whose forthcoming book, The Destructionists, the 25-year crack-up of the Republican Party, is out in August. So I want to, first of all, talk about your column where you read through Alito's opinion in this weird, I don't know what, how, how you even describe it, moment where it's not just that he takes us back to the 1950s, he's actually revisiting the 2050s, citing Judge... The 1250s. The 1250s. I'm sorry, the 1250s, where Judge, um, I will probably not pronounce it, Henri de Bracton wrote his summation of English law and customs. So so tell me about Alito's you know, foray into the 13th century. Yes, it, uh, that work was a, a multi-year work, but it appears to have been completed by 1257. Uh, and, uh, you know, look, I, you know, you often hear about Blackstone or, you know, going back to English common law. It's not that crazy an idea, but this goes back even further. So I figured, all right, well, let's see if we're going to say, uh, and this is after Alito and the opinion scolded the uh, authors of Roe for talking about uh ancient history. So, but it's much more important to talk about uh, medieval history uh, in the opinion. So I actually, because of the internet, we can now read Henri de Bracton's 1257 treatise online and it's searchable. You know, unlike Saturday Night Live's view of it, there was no mention of of witchcraft and and pointy shoes, but there is, you know, just this goes on and on about the rape of virgins. If you're not a virgin and you're raped, there may be a punishment for that, but it's very specific that the punishment is you have to have your eyes cut out because you spied the fair maiden with your eyes and you have to have your testicles cut off because this was the source of your hot lust. Now, I think it was written in Latin, but the Latin translated as hot lust, according to my translation. Uh, and, you know, obviously the, the king is supreme. The worst form of law breaking in the land would be disloyalty or disrespect to the king. And it certainly has passages uh, endorsing the notion of slavery. Uh, it talks about women's uh, inferiority. So I suppose this, you know, it, it gives us sort of the real world handmaid's tale of uh, uh, where, where things may be going if Samuel Alito uh, gets his way. Okay, so I understand the the critiques of Justice Blackman in in Roe. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that's that's fair comment by Alito that perhaps uh, there was some chop logic there. But then to go back to this guy, of all of the judges, I mean, you know, I, I think it's important to 
just remind people that there were a lot of other cases that Alito could have cited. There are a lot of other legal experts. And he goes back to somebody who wrote, those born of unlawful intercourse is out of adultery and the like are not reckoned among children. Those children born of prohibited intercourse are fit for nothing. And if you're born with a birth defect, you are called a monster. Uh, okay, so I, one of the things about, and I think I said this on, on a previous podcast, I'm more and more convinced that you know, this may be, I think we know what the result is going to be, but I would really be surprised if there were not a lot of differing opinions. I would be surprised if Kavanaugh did not write his own opinion, if Gorsuch did not write his own opinion, uh, because let's just say that, that Samuel Alito is uh, extremely Samuel Alito in this particular <laughs> opinion, and I'm just not sure that this will survive the editing process, but we've been wrong before. Yeah, I mean, you know, just as, you know, putting uh, Trump back on Twitter may be a favor uh, for Democrats, I think possibly the leak of this has done a favor to Alito to say maybe keep it out, you know, go do something more recent than 1257 uh, if you're going to do this. And uh, uh, (laughs) probably get shot down. Okay. Hey, thanks for pointing this out to me. Yes. Let's let's limit it to Blackstone and and not go back uh, all the way to Bracton. And apparently we had a piece on this yesterday in the post, another early uh, thinker who actually did portray uh, women as witches. (laughs) So there is all kinds of sorcery in this opinion. Yeah. And I wonder if, uh, you know, because the Alito opinion reads as a a screed, you know, something you would you would find on uh, the op ed page or or perhaps even on uh, social media. So certainly others might wish to disassociate themselves. I don't know about you. My view of Alito, you know, watching him on those, those occasions when I've been in the chamber, he seems to, you know, you see him roll his eyes and shake his head. When other justices are talking, he seems, you know, by his body language to seem to have a, a certain contempt. And certainly there's a lot of contempt uh, for his predecessors uh, uh, in this uh Ruling. I mean, I, yes, uh, uh, there are many good reasons to uh, quibble with the uh, legal reasoning uh, in Roe, but this is just, you know, full of contempt. All right, let's talk about the politics now of uh, of post row and, and the debate. That's, I mean, the debate, the vote that's going to take place in the United States Senate today. Uh, Chuck Schumer having a messaging vote. I have questions about this. So Mm -hmm. uh, yesterday, Christopher Ingram, who I think is Laura Ingram's brother, tweeted out, wouldn't it be smarter to put up a much narrower bill, like, I don't know, protecting abortion for ectopic pregnancies or in the first trimester or whatever, to really make Republican senators squirm? And and one of my other colleagues, uh, Sonny Bunch at at the Bulwark, wrote this. He said, look, I know they're trying to determine what's going on with any politician is dicey, but you know, Ingram makes a sound point. If if a most polling shows a vast majority of Americans believe first trimester abortions should be legal and B Schumer is just working on a stunt vote, he knows will fail anyway. Then C, why isn't he pushing a bill just to keep first trimester abortions legal? I understand worrying about the left flank, but he's Mm -hmm. defending his left flank instead of doing something that might conceivably help him maintain his Mm -hmm. majority. Your thoughts, Dana Milbank. Yeah, and I've I've been listening to your uh, your podcast uh, recently, and you know there are a lot of people saying the Democrats uh, are screwing this up; they're blowing their opportunity. Now, Democrats, you know, congenitally uh, have a way of screwing up, you know, gimmies and and blowing the opportunity. And I, I'm not saying that they're playing this right. I think the obvious answer is yes. Have just have a vote on codifying Roe, bring Murkowski and Collins along. 
that makes a lot more sense. And yes, then have these votes on ectopic pregnancy or or or, or whatever else. It it seems to be the obvious thing to do. But I want to put that in a. I think what 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 this has set off is beyond sort of the test vote or the political calculation. I think this is a an earthquake in uh, uh, in our society. And I you know if you're listening to uh, focus groups around the country and even anecdotally, everybody is aware of what's happening here. Uh, and a lot of people, even a lot of uh, uh, Trump supporters, anecdotally, are shocked by this. So I think this is akin to a big moment uh, like the civil rights era. I expect there'll be a huge and long-term societal backlash to this. So it's in that sense, it's sort of beyond the Democrats' capacity to screw things up uh, in the short term. Try though they might, yeah. I, yeah. I, I grant that they may try, um, but uh, but despite their best efforts to screw it up, uh, I, I you know I believe that 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 they probably will not be able to. Uh, but yes, I think the the obvious thing you know for Democrats, uh, certainly Democrats uh, who are vulnerable or uh, at all, is to say I support Roe, which has been the law of the land for fifty years. That's it. You're done. You don't need to go any further. And uh, that, that that's what that's what they should be doing in a tactical sense. Well, and also, I mean, the the shift, the rather dramatic shift to not include exceptions for rape, incest and the health of the mother. I mean, look, there's a reason why for the last 40 years that was pretty much the the, the go to position because people realized that would be toxic. But to your point about an earthquake, I get a sense that. This is one of those things that is going to transform the debate in ways that may be a little bit unpredictable because Mm -hmm. we have gone for half a century with the assumption that Roe was not going to be overturned, really. And so, therefore, it was, you know, it was always theoretical and you could take, you had the luxury of of purity. You could take Mm -hmm. the most extreme positions without any risk that it would actually happen because you knew what the landscape was. And also, I, I think that, you know, people have told pollsters what their positions were, you know, I, I, again, because it's maybe a, a secondary or even a tertiary issue because nothing was really going to change. But now, now you have to confront the reality of it. And I think that does change the entire debate. So I think mm-hmm. that what you're seeing right now is people adapting to a reality that they were not prepared for. Yes, I think that's exactly right. And I don't know, like, you know, Forget, leaving the, the, the left aside for a moment, you have Louisiana raising the possibility oh, of, uh, of, of charging uh, women uh, with homicide, which actually talking about our 13th century, that's exactly, that's exactly what they would right. do in that case. Um, I don't think they'll be able to stop themselves because of the, the Trump phenomenon that the most extreme wins. So I think these things are going to keep popping up all over uh, the country, they're going to be reported and people are going to be made uh, aware of that uh, as, as that happens. So I don't know if uh, uh, Republicans will be able to check themselves and and, and pull this no, back. I don't I don't um, think they are. I think that's the crucial point is that the litmus test keeps moving and moving and moving. And if you take a position that was mainstream five minutes ago, mm-hmm. in a few months, that might be the rhino position or might, that might be the sellout yeah. position. And we've seen this happen on one issue after another. And when you, and it comes to abortion, as you well know, this it's been pretty rock solid. It really hasn't changed in half a century. And if you break it down, you've got, you know, twenty percent perhaps who say abortion should be illegal in all circumstances. 
And you've got about 30% who say it should be legal in all circumstances. And then you've got this, you know, the vast majority are, uh, are somewhere uh, in the middle of that. Uh, and when, and as you mentioned, you take the exception for uh, rape and incest, you're getting up near 80% support for that. So, uh, you know, I mean, to, to the extent there's some people on the, uh, you know, the Democratic uh, base saying, you know, abortion on demand, uh, <laughs> up until yeah. the time of birth and or including infanticide uh i, I don't i don't think that's a, a large number of people uh in the democratic party uh or on the left but there will be some like that well, and mean, they're noisy and they're over and, and they're and they're absolutely noisy so i mean if you're if you're a democrat running for office you're gonna you know not listen to that uh not listen to that noise because you know roe had a lot of problems with it but it uh uh, it kept a pretty stable situation for half a century. So let's switch gears and, and talk about Ukraine for a moment. I have been somewhat critical of how slow we have been. I won't say critical, but but urging us to be more aggressive in our support for Ukraine. And something happened last night that I thought was was really kind of striking. I, I you remember Winston Churchill once described Lend-Lease as the most unsorted act in history. By the way, it's often misquoted as saying that he said that about the Marshall Plan, but. Uh, Churchill was talking about Lend-Lease, that it was the least sordid act in history. Mm -hmm. And I was struck by that last night, how unsorted it was for Congress to approve nearly $40 billion in additional military and humanitarian aid for Ukraine, which was actually more, $7 billion more than President Biden uh, requested. Mm -hmm. And it extends this really a fresh lifeline to Ukraine as Russia's moving ahead. Uh, with uh, with with its 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 war, and it was interesting to see how I mean there were were dissenters, which we'll get to in a moment, but how broad and unusual the bipartisan consensus is that even with all the other domestic problems we have, people were willing to step up for Ukraine. I, I, mm-hmm. This is a positive moment, I thought. Yeah, you're right, and it, it is heartening. It uh, you know we did not as a country get pulled by Tucker Carlson right. into a really dark place. And, you know, for decades, uh, there would have been no surprise in this. Of course, we'd uh, we'd all react in such a way. But that was a little ambiguous, I think, in the first uh, month or so of the conflict or uh, before the conflict. And it's possible that, you know, as this plays out over time, it could be unpopular. I, although I think without American troops being there, I don't think opposition really grows to it at this point. But yes, that's, let's let it let us pause and celebrate uh, for a moment. You know, I, as, as you know, we uh, see the nation uh, torn up over abortion, that some things have not changed and the United States still stands for something in the world. That's a that's a big moment. But but <laughs> all right, I'm, I'm, it, I'm looking, it was a big moment and now yeah, you've yeah, ruined yeah. it already. I am sorry to be the guy that does this, but I'm looking at this YouTube video of Donald Trump Jr., who goes on ranting uh, against the Ukraine aid package. Now, again, this this passed overwhelmingly. I think there was only, you know, there was less than 60 votes ag- against it, including people like Marjorie Taylor Greene. But, but here's Donald Trump Jr. saying that we shouldn't be sending money to this clown show in Ukraine because we need to be more concerned about our infrastructure, our homeless problem, and baby formulas or something like that. Uh-huh. And he's essentially using the same talking point of Marjorie Taylor Greene. And I guess the thing about it is, is that if Donald Trump Jr. is saying this, what would happen? And we're sort of going back to our, our, our discussion about Donald Trump being back on Twitter. 
does this reflect what the former president is going to say? What would happen if Donald Trump, you know, who might be the next president of the United States in 2025, said the same things that Junior just said? If he you know, calls Ukraine a clown show. I mean, number one, right. it makes the choices clear, but also it really raises this question mark uh, once again over is, is America about to, you know, bug out again on this? So I think that uh, Donald Trump is a follower yes. of his base more yes. than a leader. So, I mean, Trump did do this in the in the early days of this conflict. You know, he was spouting uh, Kremlin talking points. I think he saw overwhelmingly that that's not where his base is. It's not where the country is, certainly, and it's not even where his base is. And uh, he backed off of that. So thank God that this is where our country is. And there, there's no bandwagon for Trump to jump on here. And, you know, his, his son is a, a bear of little brain. And, I, you know, I love the idea that he's saying we should be focusing on infrastructure here after yes. they said <laughs> who, who voted for infrastructure here are traitors. So yeah, no. that makes a, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, if, if, if irony had not already been beaten to death by hammers a long time ago, this would, <laughs> this would be ironic. But this is another one of those reasons why I, I don't mind uh, Trump coming back on Twitter. And your point about Donald Trump being a follower is I, I, I can't underline that too strongly here. You know, there's this notion that Donald Trump sits down there in, in exile in Mar-a-Lago and dictates to the Republican Party uh, what it's going to say. No, Donald mm -hmm. Trump listens to talk radio. He watches Fox News. He looks at social media, tries to keep his finger on all that with his lizard brain. And he will not get out too far in front of, of his own folks. And if his loyal base decides that they, you know, are anti-anti-Putin, that's where he's going to go. And if you watch Junior, if you watch Marjorie Taylor Greene, if you listen to Tucker Carlson, what you are seeing is the id of the MAGAverse. And even though they are kind of fringy positions right now in terms of the polls and the votes you're seeing, haven't we learned, and, and your book sort of documents why it's bad to ignore the, the id of the right, because sometimes that's what determines where the elephant goes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it often does. Donald Trump, I mean, he, he may nudge his base in some direction, but he's not uh, hes not going to be out there fighting it. You know, I mean, there, there's no better case than the vaccines. The, he was the greatest, yep. greatest champion. These were his vaccines. And he could have <laughs> generated a lot of credit for himself with it, but he saw uh, the opposition brewing to that. He gave some half-hearted uh, endorsements of the vaccine and then uh, silence because uh, the base would turn against him. Um, I, I think this has been the, his play all along. I mean, if, you know, going back, I covered uh, Trump when he was going to run for the uh, Reform Party nomination in, in you know, 1999. And here was this you know, pro-tolerance, pro-universal health care, still sounded pretty favorable on abortion rights and certainly gay rights. This was a guy who saw the, the Tea Party and what had happened to the party. And he said, right, I'm going to be the drum major and, and lead where it has gone. So the Republican base is still internationalist, at least in this Ukraine sense. So he's not going to cross it right now. So what else should we be keeping our eye on? I, I, I just feel that this is one of those days when there's just so many possible targets and 
since I have you on, is there, is there something else you're keeping an eye on here? I, well, inflation is only yeah. 8.3%. Oh, God almighty. <laughs> so it's a, it's a slight improvement, but uh, given where things had been going. So does that trump everything else? I mean, we're talking about, you know, January 6th, we're talking about democracy, we're talking about all of this stuff. Is all of that going to be overwhelmed by the, the economy, by inflation, by the interest rate rises, by what's happening with the stock market? In terms of November, yeah, I, that's I, what I mean. yes, I certainly, I certainly think that's that's possible. That's why, uh, if this is, you know, even a slight turn in the curve, that could be a hugely important. You know, we we look at you know this midterm election through our traditional lenses, but uh, in a sense, because so many people are. Uh, influenced by uh, disinformation. I don't know if we can say, well, sure, you know, the economy is going gangbusters if inflation is tamped down. Well, then certainly that uh, benefits the president's party. That was true in the past. Uh, it's it's not at all clear to me, you know, whether it just, you know, pivots to some other issue about immigration uh, or crime. So I don't, uh, yeah, you're right. you know, I don't know if, you know, this, this backlash is just going to be baked in because of the culture and what we're living with at the moment. But, you know, I've given up on, you know, traditional forecasts. Uh, yeah, no, I'm, I'm trying to wean myself from trying to forecast or predict anything because basically we don't know. So there's no, no value in all of that. So can I tell you a, uh, slightly irrelevant, but, but somewhat entertaining story? Please. You got a moment? Okay. So I'm out walking my dogs, which I do when I'm not doing podcasts and stuff like that. And uh, my phone rings and I almost never answer the phone if I don't recognize the caller ID. Almost yes. never. But my phone has this interest. I mean, it will actually say spam call and stuff like that, which I think is very, very helpful. Mm -hmm. This one said political call. Political call. And I thought, ah, okay. I just, I'm just curious. Okay. Right. So I, I answered it. And there was this nice young woman named Sharice who said, I'm calling from the National Republican Senatorial Committee. Do you have a moment? I said, yes, Sharice, I do. And she says, we need to stop Joe Biden's socialist agenda. And in order to stop Joe Biden's socialist agenda, we need to elect more Republican senators. And I said, can I ask you a question, Sharice? She said, yeah, yes. I said, okay, so you just said Joe Biden has the socialist agenda. What, what is he actually doing that is socialist? I just, you know, and she says, what do you mean? So, well, you said Joe Biden has a socialist agenda. Could you just like name something that you think of as, as socialist, why we need the Republican Senate? There was a long silence. A lot of Poor stuff, Charisse. stuff <laughs> moving around in the, and, and then click. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't know. So look, I, I I know what I know and I don't know what I don't know, but I'm guessing that they have a sheet there saying, if anyone challenges you or asks you questions, hang up on them. <laughs> so she I had don't to know. shuffle the paper until she found that piece of instruction. She was really, I mean, you could tell she was completely thrown by the fact that I was asking her a question. And I didn't want to get into an art. I just wanted, I just was kind of curious if she would, yes. you know, maybe they would have like a sheet saying, well, I don't know, the infrastructure bill, that's yeah. socialism or something like that. Um, well, this does tell you that they're the Republican calling list. It might be a few years out of date. It might be a few years out of date, but, but also <laughs> that those jobs are the suckiest jobs in America. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> so thankless. so yeah. on, on that note, Dana Milbank, thank you so much for joining me. I appreciate it very much. It's been a pleasure, Charlie. Thanks. The Bulwark Podcast is produced by Katie Cooper with audio production by Jonathan Siri. I'm Charlie Sykes. Thank you for listening to today's Bulwark Podcast. And we'll be back tomorrow. We'll do this all over again.